Hello and welcome to Young and Sober, the podcast where we discuss what it means to get sober under the age of 30 and stay sober. If you're sober, sober curious or just curious, you've come to the right place. Any discussions heard here today are the experience of the individuals and should not be taken as the stance of AA as a whole. Welcome to episode three. This week we will be hearing from the lovely Mel who's come to share her experience, strength and hope with us. How are we? How are you doing Mel? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very pleased to be here. So thanks so much for asking me to join you. Thanks for coming. How are you doing, Christian? Doing very well, thanks. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this today. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. Um, so Mel, before we get to your social sobriety story, we're just going to start with a question from our listeners, which is, how was your first meeting different from what you expected? So... Um, my first meeting, I was 16 um, and I had landed in school and been told by my on-site counsellor that I was too drunk to be at school. Um, so I went outside and I had like a vague idea that A was somewhere that could be helpful if you had a drinking problem. Um, but I really didn't want any adult kind of like interfering. Um, so when the person that I called up on the helpline sort of said, you know, do you want us to meet you? I was like freaked out and like, no, 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 just tell me where to go and I'll just get myself there. And I kind of turned up expecting Weight Watchers for booze, you know, like for to be like, oh, I've had one can this week. I've only had two bottles of Voddy and, you know, <laughs> and I was kind of shocked that people not only weren't really talking that much about booze, but when people did mention their relationship with drinking, what they were reporting was like months and years of not drinking and talking about it as if that wasn't a massive struggle, which yeah. blew my head off, you know, and it took another four years for me to, to find recovery in a 12 step program. But I think the seed that was planted by that first impression was really, really strong. You know, the other thing was I had kind of turned up expecting park bench drinkers. And the first meeting I went to was in a part of, town where there were lots of like old Irish boys but there was also a lot of bankers mm. <laughs> I kind of I mean I didn't feel like I really identified with either of those kind of extremities but it was definitely not what I was expecting you know I was expecting real low bottom people in their in their disease I guess yeah without knowing it at the time and obviously what I was met by was like people with the lights on behind their eyes like we talk about and people that like they had their lives together so yeah that was yeah. the difference I don't know whether you found this but I definitely found that when I heard people talking it was like they were putting words to feelings and thoughts that I'd had but I'd never had the words to say mm. like I they almost like vocalized something that I only felt internally and suddenly I heard people talking about it and I was like oh my god it's not just that they drink a lot like we actually think the same as well mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. even from my first meeting I remember thinking like okay maybe this is not just you know old men I had a similar thing where I thought it was just going to be old men who'd lost their jobs and lost their families and all of that kind of stuff and it was just completely different it was just full of such a variety of people and everyone was just so nice. Like, that's the other thing. I, th I thought I would feel really, really scared the whole time. And by the end of it, I felt really comfortable. What yeah. about you, Christian? Um, what did I expect from my first meeting? Um, 
I didn't really have any expectations. Um, I, but I, at that point, I didn't realize how many meetings there were in London and that, uh, you know, if I didn't like that first meeting that I went to, I remember the first meeting I went to and thinking it was nice. There were nice people, but I, I didn't really kind of understand what was going on. And it wasn't necessarily one that I wanted to go back to. Um, but I was, I was grateful to know that there were other meetings that I could check out. And, and obviously with London, it's so easy to get around. Well, when we're not in the current situation that we're in, but you know, getting around on the tube or whatever to, to hop around meetings. Um, and I guess the meeting that I found, which was like the one that I guess was attractive to me, if you like, um, and I've given it a shout out before in a previous episode is the Vauxhall Beginners meeting um, on a Monday night where they focused on the steps and traditions. And it wasn't just because they were focusing on the steps and traditions that it was attractive. It was that there were people in there of a similar age to me, maybe a little bit older with multiple years of sobriety under the belt. And I was like, I want some of that, you know? Yeah. It seemed very serene. Uh, peaceful, knew what they were talking about, trustworthy, honest, um, and caring as well, you know, and caring and, and loving. Um, and yeah, that, that became my home group. So I just kept going back to that. Mm. Nice. Um, all right then, Mel, over to you. Do you want to share your sober social story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, uh, I guess, like I said, I was really, really lucky to have the seed planted at a really, really early age. And I guess it around, you know, 12 step recovery being a possibility and being somewhere where I would be welcomed, you know, cause I think my big, um, concern around coming into a like 12 step fellowship was that I hadn't earned my seat and that people wouldn't believe that I was credible, you know, having gone to my first meeting when I was in, you know, my mid to late teens, popped my head in a few more times and then eventually getting sober at, at 20. Um, but what I found was that although, you know, I had years realistically, you know, just for me I had years of drinking left in my body like my liver wasn't about to pack in you know my veins weren't all collapsed from like IV drug use you know I, I did have more gas in the tank physically to carry on drinking and using um, but mentally emotionally spiritually I didn't I was completely flat out and I and I had a window of opportunity which looking back now I can see was actually a really very brief window and I feel so grateful that I jumped into it when I did um, and what I came to realize with time was that actually it wasn't about how much or for how long I used or drank that made me qualify for the 12-step fellowship that I eventually landed up in it was about the stuff that happens to me before I pick up and after and, and that's, I guess, where it ties into the idea of, you know, socialising and the kind of theme of, you know, this week and, you know, you, you guys reaching out, I guess, because, you know, for me, my um, identity in relation to other people has always been in two halves. 
So I have been desperate for people to like me and desperate for affirmation and validation um, and find it incredibly difficult to just be myself and feel good enough. And also absolutely desperate for nobody to know that that's the case and put up a massive smokescreen of bravado um, and masking and, you know, kind of pseudo confidence because I'm actually so insecure. My greatest fear is that someone will discover that that's really what's underneath all of the pantomime and the fanfare. And, you know, that played out in my early years. And of course, when I found that, you know, my fast, fast track to being cool, which is what I wanted like all along. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be held in high regard by my peers and I wanted to be revered um, as something impressive really. And and to be cool, basically. (laughs) Um, I had, you know, like a lot of, you know, really difficult early life experiences, which, you know, led to me um, feeling like certain cultures and ways of being um, correlated with who I was and my identity. And like often those those kind of subcultures were, drenched in kind of angst and agony and and you know rock and roll and kicking down the door but you can't fully embody that persona when you're desperate not to upset anyone (laughs) you know and you just want everyone to like you so you know you're trying to kick the door down but halfway through the kick going but don't be don't be pissed off with me (laughs) I can't bear it um it's okay for me to kick the door down you know which it just doesn't add up you end up being torn down the middle and of course that agony and that inauthenticity um will lead to me needing an anesthetic so by the time I found drink and drugs and thought that they were my fast track to being cool um, and I did seem to to very quickly climb you know the social escalator as a result of you know being able to drink more than other people or you know being the one who was you know always up for picking up or always wanting to host the party or whatever it might be um equally the the need to fuel all of that with more and more and more not only to keep up that pretense and that image but also to kill the agony of the fact that it just wasn't really who I was you know it didn't account for the sensitivity and the the strengths I have as a as an entire holistic human being because it just reduced me to like a loud brash um kind of aggressive confrontational joke really like when I think about some of the people who were brutally honest with me when I was you know kind of midway and towards the end of my using and drinking people's impressions of me were kind of largely like a bit pitiful a bit repulsed you know I like and I thought I was so much fun you know I thought I was the life and soul of the party the party girl and it was pathetic do you know what I mean when I look back I think you know, yeah, okay, sometimes it was, it was fun. I'd be lying if I said, like, from start to finish, my drinking and using was, like, misery, you know. It, it was pretty bad sometimes, don't get me wrong. But, like, there were nights where I had a laugh, you know, and, and I guess, you know, one of the truths that I found at some points, I guess, difficult to resolve in my recovery, which, you know, it's been nine and a bit years now since that point where I had my last, you know, drink and drug, is that, like, I had really, really good friends in my, in my using and drinking days. That's my truth. Like I also, like I said, it was a, a, you know, a tale of two identities. I had terrible friends who didn't have my best interests at heart, 
who did need to fall by the wayside, who were friends purely because we were trauma bonded, you know, and we were kind of fused together through the agony of, of the reality of what it's like to be that damaged, that young and that addicted. Uh, but I also had amazing friends who I'm still friends with today. And my recovery needs to feature me still being able to do a lot of a lot of the same stuff I did with them when I was drinking and using. I still need to be able to stay up all night with my mates. I still need to be able to go out to a club and have a laugh. I still need to be able to have a house party. Like I've hosted cocktail parties in my recovery, you know, not as someone drinking, but just because for me, you know, what a 12 step program has gifted me is a bridge to normal living. So I can still enjoy all of those amazing things. And I, you know, one of the things that I heard a lot in my early recovery was, you know, if you hang around a barbershop for long enough, you'll get a haircut. You know, this idea that if I lurk around wet places, you know, eventually I'll slip. And, and for some people, you know, following that guidance advice, I think is rarely going to get you in trouble, you know, in all honesty. But I got sober in my first year of university. I had started to make friends who were my, my people some of those because they were the people taking drinking drugs, but some of them because they were like my tribe and they continue to be, do you know what I mean? Um, and so I, I couldn't, or I didn't, I don't, maybe I could have, but I certainly didn't necessarily fully sign up to that idea of, you know, the barbershop. And, and what I've come to understand today, reflecting on that is like, I need a solution for my issues with myself that lead to me using drink and drugs, that is not based in fear. I've got a fear-based issue in the first place that leads to me using drink and drugs. So why would I need a solution that's fear-based? Why would I need a solution that keeps me away from the life that I want to live? Like, and, and my authenticity is that I'm not brash, I'm not confrontational, I'm not screaming. You know, my one of my first nights at university, you know, I immediately separated who was who was uh likely to put up with me and who wasn't because I, you know already well on my way to being completely pissed out of my head, pointed at a girl who I'd met that day in my halls of residence. And, you know, at the top of my lungs, I can probably recognize in retrospect that at the time thought I was just talking because that was the other thing. I got really, really loud when I was under the influence, quite loud already. So I don't need any <laughs> drugs being poured on top to get any louder. And I pointed across the table at her and went, you look like you'd like a bit of sniff. You must be able to help us know where we can pick up because she was local. And I was, you know, completely off the mark, making an assumption on probably like what she was wearing, you know, or like the sense of humour she had. Just assume that anyone who was like all right and a decent person would obviously want to take drink and drugs with me, which, you know, now in my recovery, I think, oh, my God, you know, that's so naive and reductive and, um kind of arrogant and and just stupid you know like I, I totally correlated not wanting to to take drugs particularly but also drink to excess with being boring I was like not my people boring don't want to be near them waste of my time you know really really cut and dry and like I said it was really wasn't that nice in the persona that I inflated myself into being and really that's not who I am I've got time of day for anyone and I'm sensitive and I want to get on a level with people and the irony was I needed drink and drugs so that at some point in the night I could be crouched around um, someone's knees you know kind of knee to knee with them whispering secrets into each other's ears and getting deep you know like all I really wanted was authentic connection and I took the long loud, leery, brash, completely off my trolley, rode round because I didn't know how to say 
here I am in all my authenticity. How about you now? You know, which I can do. My recovery allows me to do that today, to just be, be myself. And like, you know, I think for me, it's an ongoing journey of, of, of acceptance as in relation to other people not liking that. I'm always going to be that, that kid that desperately wants to be liked and desperately wants to put a smile on people's face. And, you know, I've developed a lot of um, assets I can recognise, you know, as a person, both in pre-recovery and in recovery, as a result of wanting to make people happy, want people to like me, you know, there's there's aspects of myself that are so connected to that deficit, if you like, that weakness, you could call it, that actually, you know, it's a yin-yang picture. There's bits of me that are really good as a result of that desperation. There's bits of me that trip me up and don't serve me and I have to work on them. Um, but anyway, so, so I've kind of painted a bit of a picture of what it was like, you know, the reality was like, even, even my amazing, beautiful, wonderful friends who like, some of whom still take drugs, some of whom still drink a lot, you know, God, God bless them. Like that's, that's their story, you know, and I, I you know, I enjoy their company either way, you know, cup of tea or pint of lager or whatever. Um, but some of them were getting really, really sick of me. And actually towards the end of my drinking, some of them started to set boundaries and say like, this is, this is too much. And that shocked me because like I said, I've never been really someone to surround myself with a lot of kind of very run of the mill, middle of the road people. Like my people are always a bit zany and a bit <laughs> off the beaten track and a bit, do you know what I mean? Like, um, like I said, I was kind of embroiled in these like subcultures as a teenager and, you know, and, you know, a couple times in my, you know, earlier adolescence, a friend maybe had said like, you know, I think you're a bit much or, you know, you go a bit hard or why have you got a drink in the middle of the day or what, you know, isn't it a bit early for that? Or, and I kind of wrote it off as like teenage drama. I was like, oh, whatever, you know, like they're just wanting something to get, you know, het up about. And they've decided it's me and my like drinking, you know, whatever. They're just, and I, although they weren't, obviously boring people I chalked it up to them being boring in that at that period of time you know and I just dismissed it but when my friends who did go line for line and drink for drink and party for party and late night for late night for, with me started to say mm, hang on a minute Mel like what you did last night was really not cool or like you need to look at this that started to stir a slight awakening in me and as I said you know one of my first kind of rock bottoms where I thought think I've got a real big problem was you know some really really dark stuff had had um unfolded the night before I had no memory of it I had no memory of getting home I woke up in a state you know beyond which I'd been in before like I won't go into the details but it was not pretty my mum found me she was you know horrified terrified disgusted and really deeply concerned and I could see it on her face and she's not someone who necessarily um, expresses that stuff in a she's not backwards back coming forwards at times my mum <laughs> you know so the the frankness of the expression of of what she was seeing in that moment and her worry kind of struck a little chord in me you know it made me think oh hang on a minute um, and but I needed to get to school because I needed to see my counsellor. My counsellor wouldn't see me because he said I was too pissed. That worried me even more. I wanted to go to classes. They said I couldn't go to classes because I was too drunk. So I went out the front of my school with my one of my best mates at the time. And I and I called a 12 step, as I said earlier, a 12 step fellowship helpline um, and asked where the details of a meeting was. And as I said, didn't didn't stick around, you know, but probably had a, an important seed planted that day. 
Um, and, and interestingly, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but got two weeks as a result of one meeting for the first time ever for two weeks, I didn't pick up a drink or a drug, which, you know, and I, but, you know, in my grandiosity thought, oh, I've cracked it <laughs> right now. I don't need, I don't need that. Anyway, you know, like I said, I love people. I'm a natural extrovert. You know, my recovery is very much about being out in the world and, and continuing to, to be connected to people and, and be around humans. And my work is about humans today. Um, and at that point in time, I was, I was doing a lot of uh, theatre and I had written a show um, that was being performed um, at the Edinburgh Festival uh, and I was co-directing it and I was also unravelling and uh, I made some terrible decisions. You know, we talk a lot about yets, you know, the idea that things that haven't happened to you yet start to happen. And that's a bit of a, a wake up call that things are getting worse and that this is in fact a progressive disease. And, and as a result of what happened to me that August, um, where I had my last, last drink and drug, I found that the progressive nature of, of what I struggle with came to life because things I had promised myself I would never do and felt quite certain I never would. And the bit of me that was ambivalent about whether I really was addicted and whether I really needed what was on offer started to kind of those excuses started to drop away because I started to do things beyond which I thought I was capable of. And one of the big things that happened for me was that my cast who were performing the show that I had written that meant a huge amount to me and was a real symbol of some of the some of the stuff that had happened earlier on in my life, you know, and being kind of really, really stuck in the mental health system and a lot of trauma work I'd done. And, you know, a lot of my journey out of a parallel kind of struggle with mental health issues was kind of encapsulated in that show meant everything to me because it symbolized me getting out of that world. But what I wasn't willing to look at in the journey out of that world was my drink and drug issues. And then when my cast refused to work with me and they said, we don't want you to warm us up, you know, before we go on stage, we don't want you, we want to see you actually. It was so, so deeply affecting because all that stuff I've said about, you know, people are my thing, you know, and like, I, you know, at that point in time, I was writing theatre and I was, you know, involved in the world of theatre and performance because of, because of that craving I have for human connection. The idea that something I might put into the world would affect other people and their emotional experience for even a split second brought me to life, you know, and, and so to have that pulled away because of things I had done and decisions I had made was, was kind of, you know, really, really affecting. At the same time, I was really hurting people that at that point meant an awful lot to me, you know, doing arguably irreparable damage um, to relationships, which, you know, was, you know, petrol on the flames, if you like. And I came to a kind of almighty rock bottom and my drinking had always been checkered with blackouts and, you know, doing things like, you know, hurting myself or doing really taking really dangerous risks or finding myself in dangerous situations or finding out, you know, after piecing together bits of blackout that I had been in dangerous situations, you know, I was very kind of chaotic sort of slightly live wire um, at times with my drinking and using, you know, um, and, and yeah, all of that started to happen on top of all these things that I never thought I'd do and all these people being hurt. And, and thank God, that was one of the things that made me think maybe it's time, maybe it's time to check out the 12 step way again. And like, God, yeah, a few months before my 21st birthday, like it has been a wild ride, you know? And like I said, I could not, I couldn't have stayed at this for long, as long as I have if it had been about 
retiring from social life early. Do you know what I mean? Like if it had been about never dancing again, if it had been about never making a stupid mistake or like sitting on a curb outside a nightclub and like sharing a bit of pizza with your mate and trying to get a taxi at two in the morning. Like if it hadn't been, you know, all that stuff that people associate with drinking, even stupid stuff. Like I've, you know, my mates really laugh at me because they'll often say like, you're the most pissed one on a night out because I love I love the company of drunk people. I don't think that's problematic. I think I love being around people who are disinhibited enough that they're free and that they're alive and they're allowing themselves to be a bit more authentic than, you know, when we're all constrained and chained up by, you know, the the norms of, of daily society and, you know, the way we're expected to be in all of our own insecurities. And when people kind of put a bit of lubricant on all of that and it all drops away and people start to loosen up a bit, that's that's where it's at for me. Okay, you know, have I enjoyed over like the last nine and a bit years you know often being a bit of a mama hen you know being the one who's like almost like expected to hold back people's hair you know they're like having a shocker or you know mop up tears or think clearly when everyone else is blurry eyed no you know sometimes I don't appreciate that but but I wouldn't change it for the world you know because like I said I needed to still feel that I was normal my greatest fear was that I would be written off as boring and that I would um you know in a weird way I've always like rejected the idea of normality and and had this kind of brittle kind of bristling kind of repulsed reaction to the idea of kind of vanilla like you know middle of the road you know like straight as a die kind of ways of being but equally I didn't want to be the wrong type of freak you know I didn't want to be too far off the beat you know to the point of rejection because that's you know like I said before one of my ultimate greatest fears and kind of you know um you know exorcist kind of inducing reaction inducing kind of primal kind of um insecurities is like oh my god don't don't think I'm not good enough don't validate that internal belief I have that maybe I'm not um so so like I said walking always walking a tightrope not wanting to be too normal but not wanting to be abnormal enough um but I I really couldn't bear the idea of just yeah like I said um the edge is becoming too softened you know too shaved off and kind of pommy stone down to the point of just having nothing about me mm-hmm. yes um and my recovery has been like you know of course it's been important for me to make sober friendships of course they are some of the most important you know not for a minute saying my friends that have you know ridden through <laughs> the good the bad and the ugly aren't you know incredibly dear to me and like the one thing I have to say as well like people have often questioned to me you know did you have to let go of all your friends and you know did you have to lose a lot of people like nine and a bit years on the people that really matter have never ever not backed me like all of my friends for a long long time now have said if we ever saw a drink in your hand we would be absolutely horrified you know one of my mates was saying to me the other day if someone came up to me and said oh I think I saw Mel drinking I call them a liar you know because I believe in your recovery I see how hard you work for it and I believe I believe that you meant it when you said you would do everything you could when you made your amends to not be that person again you know which 
is amazing to me. My mates have for years been my taste tester, you know, like when we've ordered around and there's been one, one just diet Coke, <laughs> been the ones to check. It's definitely not accidentally had a shot of vodka put into it. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, I'm sort of rambling on a bit now, but I, I suppose what I kind of want to finish on saying really is um, I'm much better at being myself but also I'm much better at partying sober than I ever was drunk you know or under the influence you know I absolutely love all of the treasures that life has got to offer me these days and you know one of my one of my best friends who I will forever be grateful to a few months after I turned up to university sort of a bit broken very confused still using and drinking we went drink for drink, line for line. You know, we would have these nights where we would just, you know, pick up, be surrounded by baggies, get loads of booze in and just literally shack up in my room and just listen to music and just drink and sniff and smoke and whatever. And I remember him saying to me after like, you know, that first time of university is really short, isn't it? Like it must have been about eight weeks, you know, you know, that way you build those really close friendships, you know, in those eight weeks, it's like, you know, you're inseparable. And I remember him saying to me, you do this for a different reason than I do. You're running away from something. And that frightens me a little bit. And it was such a huge, like I said, a wake up call for me because, you know, I had seen it, like I said, a few times from mates who I thought were being a bit overdramatic at the time. I'd seen it from mates who did drink and use like me, but, you know, I wasn't totally sold still. But this person didn't know me. They didn't know all my skeletons in the closet and, you know, all my history. And, you know, and I truly believed, you know, and I still believe to this day, like one of the most amazing humans I've ever met in terms of like he really was just saying it from a place of wanting what was best for me and you know sobriety and that taking that cue from him and going all right hang, hang about <laughs> I've got something to address here has gifted me so many more interactions with those sorts of beautiful souls who truly meet me and see me and see the best in me and allow me to see the best in them and I've got the most wicked friends the most amazing life like so much better than I ever thought it could be um, because I turned up into a 12-step program humbled by how painful it had got and was willing to take the suggestions, you know, and, and listen to what people who had experience of going, you know, walking that dusty road ahead of me, um, I listened to what they had to say. And I, you know, dismissed the little monster in my head that was saying, oh, you, you know, you're not old enough. You haven't lost enough. You're not this enough. You're not addicted enough. You're not, you know, whatever, you, you know, you didn't wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and glug six liters of cider enough, whatever it was, you know, um, and just listen to what other people had to say and shared about some of that, those doubts and those worries as they came in and listened to what other people had to say about them. And like, like you said, Alex, like I found that people's heads work the same way mine did. Like I found it was about the thinking, not the drinking. I found that that parallel journey I've been work, walking around my mental health, actually a decent amount of, of the stuff that I struggled with, those demons can be tamed, not fully magicked away, but they can be tamed via the principles of the 12-step programme I work. Um, and it's it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Like the stuff I've got up to... <laughs> is wicked and and it's done it's done wonders for my social life I think I'm a person that people like to invite these days they don't invite out of obligation so <laughs> the topic of socializing I'm a happy customer I got tenfold what I was promised when I when I uh, 
started it. So I think I'll leave it there. Cheers. <laughs> oh, amazing, Mel. Thanks, Mel. Yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed that. And I think that would have helped a lot of people, um, particularly young people, which is obviously who we're targeting. By the way, to whoever's listening, Mel is a young person's liaison for London Region South. So she support she has supported me um, and our committee with, you know, uh, letting us know about young persons meetings that are going on in, in South London. Um, and yeah, it's just been a you know real pleasure to get to know you, Mel. And you speak, you can tell, like you're just, and I and I can I can vouch for this, is that recovery gives you back your authenticity which is what i heard from you you know you're not like trying to sound a certain way you're just kind of telling it how it is um and i think for a lot of people drinking takes off at university it did for me as well um and it was also when i kind of got a little bit more into other substances as well and really those those other substances became of interest to me because alcohol wasn't really doing the trick anymore it's just you know i was didn't really enjoy getting drunk so i just needed something else and that was my sort of my arrival moment when i could combine drink with other things so i can just balance those out but i knew there was something it's funny you talk about those close friendships that you make at uni and I, I still have a very close friend of mine and he doesn't actually drink and he, he's not in a 12-step program but you know we, we have a very close relationship because we used to party a lot and you know we used to be like last men standing and a bit greedy with our you know drinking and using got up to all sorts of mischief at university um but yeah it is it's like those are the people that you have those deep and kind of deep conversations with isn't it when you're under the influence those are the people that you but when you realize actually you don't need those things anymore it's um such a revelation and yeah thank god for hitting rock bottom because had it not been for hitting rock bottom and being will you know i wouldn't have had the willingness you know, I would have gone into a 12-step meeting and said, thanks, no thanks, and just, you know, but I had that, like, okay, I need to make a change. And for me, and I, I think it's what I got from your chair, was that in order to be willing to do the work, I had to, have, not because of anybody else outside of me, but because I, inside of myself, had had enough. I couldn't continue living like that anymore. Um... And I think the reason you continue doing it, you're not, what, nine years on now, you said, is because of what you get through working the programme. You know, you get to better understand who you really are again, because um, we completely lose sight of who we are when we're in the madness. And you can be there for your friends, there for your family. You can talk from the heart. And I got so much from it. So thank you, Mel. Mm, I totally echo that. I mean, I connected with so much that you said like when you were talking about the bit of the the night that you love loved the most when you were drinking and using was when you were sat in a corner having a real conversation with people that was what I craved 
that was ultimately what I craved. And also that split personality. I was so with you there, like desperately wanting people to like me, but nobody could know that that was my goal. Nobody could know. And I had to be cool. I had to be the life and soul of the party. I had to be a little bit different, but not too different that people would reject me. Like, I mean, I still feel like that today, but I'm better able to manage it. Um, and then just lastly, when you were talking about, you know, the mental health journey coming alongside, you know, when I got sober, I realized that I'd been medicating my, men my mental health issues with drugs and alcohol. And the first two years of my sobriety were about me actually finally facing my mental health issues for the first time. And yeah, it was, it was all, all kind of buried under this layer of trauma that I've now been able to look at for the first time properly. And just this constant, constant sensation of never being enough, never being enough and never just being able to be myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit behind you. I'm just coming up to four years, but hearing your story, like I admire your recovery so much. I mean, I, I do, I love my social life. I also have incredible friends that I had when I was drinking and using that are still friends of mine now. I still go to house parties. House parties were always my thing. They're still my thing. I do still sometimes find it hard. I mean, I'm sure you do as well. There are days when I, I'll be at a party and I'll just kind of sit myself somewhere and people will come and go from me. And I'm totally happy to be that person. And then there's other days when I'm like dancing around being the life and soul of the party. Um, but when you were talking about that one friend of yours from university, it just reminded me of my friend, Joe, who was the first person that I told that I was going into AA. And he firstly said to me, and I, I shared this actually last week, said, okay, let's find some sober activities to do then. But secondly said, Alex, I used to watch you at the parties that we used to go to. I would watch you and you would come in and you would be yourself. And I was so happy that you were there. I was so happy that you were there. And then at some point during the night, a switch would go. And I knew that you were gone. I knew that you were gone and I knew that my friend was gone and that somebody else had come in. And I'd never heard anyone explain it to me like that before, but that was it. That was exactly it. Alex herself was gone and this monster had taken her place who would generally nine times out of 10 was when I was in blackout and I just wasn't that person. And to kind of rediscover who that Alex was underneath. And, you know, I kind of thought when I came in, like, oh, I'll get myself back. But actually, I didn't want to be the person that I was before. I've grown into this, you know, she's still there, but there's such a, a wealth of other stuff that comes with recovery that just kind of adds on to all the things that we already are and just enables us to, like, just grow those little seeds of, like, wonderful things in ourselves that just, just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. Um, we've got a few questions for you that we're going to ask everyone that comes to share with us. Um, so firstly, what are your three favourite things about being sober? My three favourite things. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, right? And this sounds so corny and I, I sort of alluded to it there, but I, ha you know, I have had um, close, dear people who are no longer in my life who've also struggled with addiction and, and um, have been someone who's had promises broken to them. Do you know what I mean? Even had one person, um, you know, go through the steps and, you know, make amends to me. And, and then, you know, their recovery took a different, different journey. And, and I ended up, you know, really, really traumatized as a result of watching their addiction 
come and take serious grip again. Um, and I think as a result of, of being on that other side of the fence, if you like, probably the biggest thing for me is that the amends I make mean something every single day that I'm sober. Because I, I know when I when, you know, that person made amends to me and, you know, part of the you know amends process, which, you know, if anyone who's listening isn't familiar with the sort of 12 step, you know, program, um, you know, at step eight, we, you know, uh, make a list of basically people we've harmed. And at step nine, we will then start to make approaches to those people and think about how to right those wrongs and, you know, and, and acknowledge our part. Um, and, and when, you know, when we do that, often we will ask people. Uh, you know, we'll acknowledge the harm done and then ask people if there's anything we can do. And I remember saying to that person, just don't ever, please don't ever go back to being that person, please. And I, you know, I was crying my eyes out and I meant it with every fibre of my being that that was the biggest gift they could ever give to me. And some of the people I made amends to when it became my turn said similar things, you know, and I, and I said, just as that person said to me, it wouldn't be right of me to promise you that because I only have one day at a time, but I will commit today. And I've got pretty decent confidence that I will continue to commit to the best of my ability to putting one foot in front of the other and, and doing this because I know I need to for myself and, and I hear what you're saying. And I, you know, we talk often, don't we, about living amends, you know, and the fact that the continuing to live a sober life is an amends in and of itself. And I guess because of that little girl I guess in, you know to think about inner child stuff inside me and inside you know many of us or little boy or little person whoever who desperately wants to be liked I, I need to make amends to her as well and that living amends I apologize and I make right the distance I put in place from her the the trauma I put her through the re repulsion and revulsion I allowed her to feel from me as an adult every time I have another sober day, you know, I'm taking good care of her the way that I didn't for so much of my addiction. Um, so that's my biggest one, really. I guess the other one is that, like I said, you know, I said like getting sober's done wonders for my social life. Like I love dancing. I love partying sober. <laughs> I love staying up till stupid o'clock in the morning with my mates and watching the sun come up, you know, and I've done it with mates who are also in 12 step recovery and mates who are, you know, sozzled, you know, my, my before friends who've stayed with me the long, the long course. Um, and I love it. I love that feeling of being alive, you know, under the influence of only the amazing power of the universe. Do you know what I mean? I just think that's so magic. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably said a few in one there. So those are my two biggies. <laughs> I love that. Nice. So favourite uh kind of similar to what we just asked but favorite sober activity if you could ever pick one pick a different one oh my god i mean like do, can i just say partying <laughs> can i just say yeah having it having a great time with my mates definitely can um and actually you mentioned inner child work so what is a piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self um oh yeah so i was thinking i was thinking about this as well actually it, it, it's not going to matter that much in a year chill out <laughs> it's the most important thing you know yeah of course there's like much deeper less kind of um facetious stuff than that but the thing that continues to trip me up because you know I've been a, a very young person both in recovery and pre it do you know what I mean so you know I would say to, I would say to myself a year ago I'd say to myself 20 minutes ago is it going to matter in a year chill out babe <laughs> do you know no 
Nice. Okay. Favorite recovery save? Nothing changes if nothing changes. I wrote it in biro on my notebook that I wrote my step step four in because I needed to just drill down to the fact that I had to do something different and it was do or die for me. So that I find it true. The background on my phone is nothing changes if nothing changes. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and lastly, what is a song that has meant something to you in your recovery? Um, I would say there's a song called Wooden Heart by Listener and it I think they like the band talk about it as like talk music I highly recommend it's just beautiful it's it it talks to the extremist in me both you know before and now I love it amazing so we're just going to wrap up with a bit of gratitude what's something that you're grateful for today I am I'm really grateful to have been asked to connect with both of you guys to have an opportunity to hopefully let somebody know that you know being sober and young you know can still be a right laugh even maybe a little bit rock and roll dare I say <laughs> a bit old to try and cling on to that one but yeah really grateful to have had a chance to hang out with you guys here for the last hour or whatever it's been amazing Christian gratitude today um I am grateful, always grateful to not be waking up with a hangover. Like, I know that sounds, but to not have a hangover and to be able to like, like get on and not have like that shame, fear and guilt coming over me. Like, I often feel grateful for that. So, that's what I'm say. Um, and I, I'm grateful for my dog today. He got me out of the house. He sat at my feet, just being cute. And he keeps me company. He's amazing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Love that. Um, Mel, thank you so much for joining us. That was incredible. Um, and everyone, we will be back next week with Young, Sober and Working. Please do like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you have any other questions or feedback about what you've heard today we would also love to hear from you on instagram which is at young and sober podcast or email us at young and sober at outlook.com and that is it for yet another episode we are young and sober you are indeed thanks mel Bye. thanks